Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of, the kin of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to uh, speak to your people, to talk to them about your word. I thank you for the weight and the sincere, the, just uh, the sincere desire, Lord, to please you in all things. Um, I pray, Father, that tonight you would make clear what your word says to give us things to reflect on this week as we think about how we might live, as we reflect on how you worked uh, in the life of Abraham. It makes us think about how you work in a real world in our lives as well. So we ask that you would help us tonight, Father. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. On this past Friday evening, I had the opportunity to take some time to uh, spend a Friday evening with my family. And we decided to do um, a family night. Uh, and after doing our family devotionals, we took time to watch a movie uh, about a young man called William. Uh, the name of the, the picture was The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. Uh, you may be familiar with it, but it's the story of a, a young man who lived uh, at, at that time in his life uh, in a place in a village called Wimby uh, in the country of Malawi uh, on the continent of Africa. Uh, and at this particular point uh, in the lives, I think it was in the early 2000s when the events were taking place uh, in Malawi, uh, for, various for various reasons, economic, climate, uh, governmental decisions, there happened to be uh, a shortage of grain. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, it caused there to be a shortage of food. Uh, and whenever you cut off people's food supply, people become desperate. And such was the case uh, in their situation in their village area and some surrounding villages around them where there was no grain and they were concerned and the uh, wet season and dry season had come and so they were in a, a desperate place. And this one young man had an, an idea of a way to help resolve the problem uh, from some reading that he had encountered. Um, and so he uh, needed, in order to, to, to complete this solution that he had come up with, he had needed his father's bike. Uh, and from the way at least the, the picture portrayed it, that this was their only mode of transportation for the family. And so while his father was out uh, working in the field one day, he told his father his idea and explained how he needed the bicycle to complete this in order to be able to save uh, the village. Uh, his father, after hearing the idea, dismissed it uh, and decided that he would not give him the bicycle uh, that they had because he not only wanted to borrow the bicycle, but he wanted to dismantle it and reconstruct it in such a way so as to be able to complete his idea, which would mean that the bicycle would no longer be able to be used in the way that they had hoped. Uh, and the reason behind that, I would say, is ultimately because the father did not trust that what his son had proposed would be able to uh, save the village. He, he didn't believe 
that what his son said he could accomplish. Uh, and that, that's just kind of something that's true that we all know. To some degree, we all know that uh, relationships are based on trust. Uh, and we, we see that clearly when a relationship breaks down because there has been a loss of trust or someone has violated our trust. And so as a result, uh, the relationship then begins to, to break down. And, and we realize that, hey, without this, uh, then we will not be able to move forward. It would kind of be like if, uh, if you were a person who carpooled to work, and so you had made an agreement with a coworker in order for you guys to reduce the, the efficiency cost, the gas cost, the fuel cost to work, that one week you would drive, and the other week this person would drive. And so uh, their week came around to pick you up, and Monday passed, and they forgot you, and so then you had to drive yourself to work. And Tuesday came, and they forgot you again. Uh, you're starting to see a pattern of behavior. And then on Wednesday, it rolls around, and guess what? They've forgotten you. And you start to think to yourself, this deal is not working out so good for me. And so you get to the point where probably on Thursday, you don't even look for them. You probably don't call. You don't text. You just get in your car at your regular time and drive yourself to work because the trust in the relationship has broken down. Uh, Trust or, or faith or belief in someone is, a, is an essential part of relationships. And it's true of our relationship with God as well. Uh, so much so that the writer of the Hebrews said this. He said, and without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so uh, since we know that as a teaching team that or a preaching team that Faith is such a critical aspect of our relationship with God. We've decided to do a series that's focused on the topic of faith. And for our case studies, what we will offer to you is the lives of the children of Abraham. And so in the weeks coming, what we'll be doing is looking at various events in their lives and seeing how that their faith in God or lack of faith in God played out in their lives. So we'll start that. Uh, to launch the series, what we decided to do was to do a quick review uh, over the life of Abraham. Uh, probably if you were here back in 2016, uh, we actually covered the life of Abraham. We took about the first half of the year and went over the life of Abraham and talked about this concept of faith in the life of Abraham. And so my job tonight is to take those 14 chapters, the six months, and pack it all into one message for you tonight. And so I'm going to try that daunting task. Doesn't mean I'm going to succeed, but we will make the effort to get it done. And so uh, in order to do that, I've tried to take a different approach to tonight's message. One way we could approach it is we could simply just walk through the life of Abraham. But I've decided uh, after spending some time with Abraham this week that there's some themes that came out to me or stood out to me in Abraham's life. And I'm going to share those themes with you. And it's seven themes, which works out nicely because the way I framed this out, decided to do it was more like a devotional kind of idea where I will take each theme, uh, I will break it down, I'll give you for each theme, uh, I'll select it based upon a day, so, so the kind of idea is that you could take each theme and you can reflect on it each day of the week. So there'll be a different theme for each day of the week. And I'll give you a, a, a key word for that day, I'll then give you a, a key thought, and then we will have a, a key verse, and then I'll give you some commentary, and then we'll move on to the next day. So we're going to work our way through the week, uh, when we get to the end of the week, we'll be at the end of the message. At least we hope so. And, and, and that'll, that'll be the, the idea. That's the plan or the goal. So that's kind of the idea of what we're going to do tonight. So you can 
think about that. So uh, our first day, of course, uh, starting off with tomorrow. Tomorrow is Sunday. Uh, the key word for Sunday is the word call. The word call. You can see it there on the screen behind you. Uh, the key thought is that faith in God, or for us in a New Testament era, Jesus, uh, begins or begin with a divine call. Begins with a divine call. The, uh, the main text that I would use here for this, drawing from Abraham's life, is at the beginning of Abraham's life, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. If you'll pull up the next slide for, for me, we'll find that verse there. Uh, and so you'll read here, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Abraham came to faith in God because God called him. That's the reason that Abraham has faith. Uh, when Abraham, or as Abram in this text, because his name actually gets changed later, uh, as it was known at that time, lived in the city of Ur, we know from the text that he worshipped other gods. Uh, when we come to the book of Joshua, this is after the time of Moses. Hundreds of years later, you remember Joshua. He was the understudy of Moses. Uh, and he reflected on what was going on. And in the book of Joshua, we find this written where Joshua reflects on what God has done. As he quotes God's words back to the people of Israel during the time of the conquest. And he said this, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And so we see what, what we see in Abraham's life is that he does not go seeking the everlasting God as he is called at one point in Abraham's life, the creator God that we see at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Uh, he's not looking for this God. And you might wonder why that is the case. And the reason why that is the case, at least in Abraham's life, He's not looking for God, that is the true and living God, the one creator God, because that category in his life is already filled up. He's already have the category or space in his heart for God filled up with other gods. Uh, we know from archaeological evidence, it's at least about the, uh, the area or the city of Ur, if we've got it right, or at least... Uh, if archaeology has it right and they have the right Ur, there's two theories about Ur, a, a southern and a northern theory. But let's say that we go with the southern theory. Uh, and they had inside of that city, which was sophisticated and developed, there was a temple. And the patron deity was a god by the name of Nana, uh, which was the moon god. And, and although there were other gods, this was the main patron god of Ur. And so if that's the case, then most likely uh, from the text, as, as it says, Abraham was a worshiper of Nana. His heart was already turned towards worshiping Nana and <clears throat> perhaps the other gods of the Sumerian time, uh, whichever gods those were at that time. And so he was living in that area and worshiping those gods. And it was in that context, while he was in the midst of idol worship, that as we learn from Stephen's sermon in the New Testament, when he's dealing with the religious elite of his day, that God had appeared to him while he lived there. That's Acts chapter 7, verse 2. And then we see here in Genesis chapter 12 that when he moves to Iran, when Terah moves his family to Iran, which we're not told why he does that, perhaps it had to do with the fact of what happened in Abraham's life when the Lord appeared to him 
in Mesopotamia, that they began that journey. When they get to Haran, for whatever reason, the, 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 uh, the family plants down there, and God then, after his father dies, calls him, uh, most likely this time, a second time to go into the land of Canaan. And one of the thoughts that occurred to me is this. If God had not called Abraham or Abram at that time, he would have remained an idol worshiper just like everyone else in his city. And we would have never known that he existed. But it was because God called him that we know who he is. Now, here's the reality of that. What was true of Abraham is also true of us. Why was Abraham an idol worshiper along with whatever population was in the city of Ur at that time? It's most likely all the peoples of the earth for which God had to call this man out of and appear to him so that he could start a relationship with him to be able to bring him into relationship to form a representative on the earth. Because you remember what happened back in Genesis Sin had been let loose in the world, and one of the effects that sin has upon us is that it tends to turn our heart away from the true God. And we like to fill that area of our lives up with other gods. Now, we're too sophisticated in our society to call them that. We wouldn't call them gods. We wouldn't refer to them in that way, but that's exactly what they are. As the prophet would say, they are idols of the heart. And so in our lostness, before we came to the knowledge of God, that area in our lives was filled up with other things. And that's why people don't go seeking the true God. That category already has someone or someones in it. It's just not the right God. And seeing this, King David, and reflecting on humanity, wrote this back in Psalm many years before we lived. And he said this. He says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Excuse me, not even one. When we get to the New Testament, Paul is going to pick up this same thought, uh, this same line of reasoning as he writes to the Christians at Rome, as he opens up laying out his argument of what's going on with humanity, as he lays out this idea that the people of Israel and all the people from all the other nations are in the same situation before God, that we're all guilty of sin, he quotes from this psalm to lay out and show that we're all in a position where we're all trapped in sin, and yet none of us seek after the living and true God. And so when he comes to the Corinthian church and writes them, that's why he goes and describes what has happened in their salvation, to remind them that they're in Christ, not of their own accord, but because of God's initiative and move toward them. And so he tells them, hey, listen, the reason that you're in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is because when you were in your idol worship, not seeking the true God, God reached out to you and called you into relationship with his son. You're in Christ because of what God has done, not because of what you have done. That's the reality of the situation. He goes on to tell the Thessalonians in the second letter in Thessalonians chapter 2, 
as he says to the Thessalonians, he writes to them and he says to them, the way that God calls you or the way that God did call you was through the gospel message that was proclaimed to you. And through that message, God called you into relationship with Christ. Because what we find that is true of us is what was true of our foreparents, the first parents, that Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they hid. And God came seeking them. If I were to liken it to us, we hide, God seeks. That's what the text says. And that's why when Jesus in Luke chapter 19 talks about his life, he says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Because it is God's initiative that salvation happens for human beings because he seeks us out. He's the one who comes to us and brings us into relationship with himself. So if you're here in this room today, most likely it's because God has already sought you out or God is in the process of seeking you out and drawing you to his son. And that then, for those who've been sought out, ought to be a reason to praise God. So faith begins with a divine call. That Sunday's reflection. That brings us to, to Monday. Monday, the key word for Monday is promise. Promise. The key thought is that faith in God or Jesus uh, means trusting the promises of God. Key text here that is quoted throughout the New Testament repeatedly is Genesis 15, 6. And if you don't remember it, it says this, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. When we look at Abraham's life, if you just read it in one fell swoop, what you're going to notice is that there is a repeated pattern that continues to happen in Abraham's life. God continues to show up throughout the years of Abraham's life, uh, in the last hundred, part, hundred years of his life, and makes promises to Abraham. Uh, we see the initial promise here in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Uh, after Lot leaves Abraham and there's some confusion and disputing, God reiterates his promise in Genesis chapter 13. Uh, after Lot, the Abraham has to go and rescue Lot, the Lord shows up to him in Genesis 15 and reiterates those promises. Before the conception of Isaac, God shows up to him and promises what, what he's going to do, forms a covenant with him, and that happens in Genesis chapter 17. And then about a year before Isaac is born, God shows up again and promises and reiterates the promises he's made to Abraham in Genesis 18. And then after uh, he's born and some years later, God shows up again and promises to Abraham that he's going to take care of his oldest son, Ishmael. Throughout the text, what we see is that the, the promise making is a one-sided deal. God's the only one making the promises. And thus, the, re the reality of what sets in on us is that it is our job because God is the one making the promises, is to trust what God has said that he will do exactly as he said he would do. Uh, let me give you an example of this in the life of Abraham. Uh, when Abraham was about 85 years old, the text, we're not really sure, but it, it kind of leans in that direction when he's about 85 or, or sometimes shortly before that, that God promises him that he's going to have a son as an heir, because what, what Abraham is concerned about because of the day and the cultural practices, and Abraham is not this like um, lone traveler out there with a few people. You kind of got to think of Abraham more like a, 
Uh, he's kind of like a tribal chief. Uh, he's got tons of people, lots of slaves or, or servants, whatever you want to use there, uh, surrounding him. He's got people who are being born in his house. He's got herdsmen. He's an extremely wealthy guy, and most likely, uh, from the way we read the text, Abraham's probably got about a 1,000 people around him who are under his charge. So, so he, when he comes to town, it's a big deal, right? So he, he's moving with a large group of people, and, and it's kind of there. So he, he's concerned about who's going to get what he has, that is, who's going to be the inheritor. And most likely, it looks like from the traditions of that day that if you didn't have a physical heir, then whoever was your oldest servant would become the heir, and you would give all to them, and they would carry things on. And so Abraham wants the Lord to provide him a biological heir to the Abraham family. And God tells him that's exactly what he's going to do. But in the first time, God does not explain the details of how that's all going to work out. And so because Abraham doesn't know how all the details work out, we see from the text uh, that there is a plan launched in the text. Most likely Abraham went home and because God had talked to him probably like any other time, you know how it is when you're married, you go home and something great happened and you want to talk to your wife about it. So Mr. Abraham goes home and talks to Sarah and he says to her, listen, I talked to God today. We kind of sat out, you know, by the, one of the trees and God showed up and we kind of had a conversation. Told him about that whole son thing again that I was worried about. He told me not to worry. I'm going to have a son. Things are going to work out fine. Right. And because he didn't have a plan, they then we see that they then began to preemptively act to fulfill uh, of that plan. Now, in that day, they didn't have any ultrasounds. There was no genetic manipulation, no way to, to ensure that you would have a son. Uh, they had to just believe what the Lord said. And that's exactly what Abraham does. But they don't know the means by which God is going to do this. So they revert to what seems to be, at least from what we know or seem to know at this point about history, what may have been a cultural practice of the day. Uh, if a wife was barren, then there is laws in some other places that may have been influenced at that time around Abraham's time where uh, a wife would then give one of her servants or slaves to her husband as a wife so that she could bear the child for him like a surrogate mother. And so this is what the plan they launched because they know that God is going to give them a son. That, that's a great thing. Wow, you're going to have a, a kid. You know it's going to be a boy because God has told you it's going to be a boy, but he didn't tell you exactly how that was going to happen. And so you just get to work in the plan out yourself. And that's exactly what they did. They said, you know what? We can work it out. We got some ideas to get this done. And so what do they do? They end up getting into a plan that ultimately brings about the birth of Ishmael. Uh, it's not until about 14 years later, if you, if you don't catch that in the text, 14 years pass before God actually shows up again and says, yeah, that's not what I was thinking. I had a different idea in mind, but you guys just kind of ran with your own thing. Like, like, I had a plan, but that was not it. And so he tells him, he says, no, hey, listen, this plan that I had, this idea, this concept was, it's actually going to come through your wife. I wasn't talking about the Hagar thing. I was actually talking about Sarah. But, you know, I didn't tell you that the first time, but you decided to move on anyway, and we are here where we are. Now, this plan is, uh, at this point, Abraham's about 99 years old. Sarah's 10 years younger than Abraham, so she's 89. And you can kind of believe, uh, even back during that day, even though they lived longer, stuff like that, the text tells us she's well beyond childbearing years. So God says to him, hey, listen, yeah, we're going to do that through your wife. And uh, Abraham, you know, the first time when he first heard this, he laughed. And when Sarah hears it from God, you know what she does? She laughs because she thinks it's funny, too. 
Because she's like, now, you know, I don't know if God checked the biological clock lately, but I'm not as young as I used to be. He should have showed up like 20 years ago, you know. We could have worked this out. But now, look at this. We passed those days, and so we're in a different situation here now. And that's one of the texts you find that God actually asked the question, uh, is there anything too hard for the Lord? They were laughing. God was serious, dead serious. And just about the time that God had said it would happen, Isaac was born. Genesis chapter 21, this is what we read in the text. It says this, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at that time of which God had spoken to him. The writer of Genesis, Moses, wants us to know that God always keeps his promises, no matter how extravagant they seem to us. Now, I don't know where I heard this this week in my research or different things that I was studying, but there was one Christian writer or speaker who had said, uh, he said, he said, I believe the reason that God allowed it to be so late in Abraham and Sarah's life well beyond childbearing years. Why would God do that? He said, I believe God did that so that no one would question where this came from. That no one could claim that any way specifically, hey, maybe it, was, it just happened. She was, had a little bit longer life of being able to conceive than other women. He was like, no, 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 we so far past beyond those limits. There's no chance. God wants them to know, and everybody realize that the only reason Isaac exists is because God has intervened in human history. That's why he's called the child of promise. See, faith requires an object. As Christians, the reality is we don't have faith in faith. You just, just telling you to have more faith is useless because faith is only as good as the object you put your faith in. It doesn't matter how sincere you are, you can be sincerely wrong. Because whatever you put your faith in, if it doesn't have the ability to do what you're trusting it to do, it will fail you in the end. And so for us as Christians, what we put our trust in, what we do is we put our trust in someone who is able to deliver, that is the person of Jesus and by way of Jesus in God and the very promises of God. And we believe from the testament of Scripture and the testament of life and history that God keeps his promises. We believe that if we repent of our sins and turn and place our faith in Jesus Christ, that God will actually do something for us. We don't get to see it. We don't feel it when it happens. But we actually believe that somewhere in the records of heaven, God actually clears our record of sin. And so that the books of heaven are cleared so that on the day of judgment, when Jesus claims us, there's nothing for anyone to look at and say they're guilty. They cannot enter your presence because we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. We believe that the God, when we actually place faith in Christ, even though we can't see it. Now, some of us may have had unique experiences with this. There is a reality that when, the, that when God has promised that when he comes into our life, his spirit comes and indwells us and takes up residence in us. Now, we might not always feel close to God, but it does not change the reality that what God promised was said would happen, would happen, has happened, and it's still happening, whether I feel like it or not. 
The Spirit is present in every believer. Because of what God has promised, although we haven't gotten to the day yet, we're not there. We're not at God's great throne. We're not standing before the beam of seat of Christ. We've not had a, yet, a chance yet to stand before final judgment. But we do know that because of what God has promised, on that day when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, we will be acquitted before God because of what Christ has done. Not because we know we're, we're already there, but because we know that what God has said is true and he will always keep his promises. And that's why in life we don't have to worry because it was Christ who promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So even though I feel like I'm alone, I can look at the word of God because I know that God always keeps his promises. No matter how dark it gets, I can quote that promise and know that the Lord is with me. And that's why I can go back to Psalm 23 and say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid. Why? Because I know that you are with me. That's the reality. God always keeps his promise. And for many of us, the reality that in the gospel that comes to us is that God will, after we have died and passed out of this life, one day God will do for us what he did for Jesus that he will raise us from the dead. And brothers and sisters, I just started on the promises. We could go on the rest of the night talking about the promises of God that have become available to us through the person of Christ because we are in Christ. See, like Abraham, faith in God means trusting in God's promises. <clears throat> now, I know the astute Bible scholar would then ask, but wait a minute now. Now, you know, there's some, some promises in the Bible that are written to specific people at a specific time in a specific culture at a specific point in time. Now, I know that I need to be careful not to just start claiming promises just willy-nilly, right? Stuff that doesn't belong to me. And, you know, I just be wanting to apply stuff to my life, you know, and all that. And, and then some Bible scholar, I come, come Bible scholar comes along to be like, that's not for you. You shouldn't be applying that to your life. That's an error of scriptural interpretation. Let me read to you what an Old, Old Testament scholar says in reflecting on what Paul says to the Corinthian church when he says that in Christ, all the promises of God are yes. Dr. Jason DeRucci puts it like this. He says, if you're a believer, I encourage you today to boldly claim the promises of God in all of Scripture, following the pattern of the New Testament authors. Any promise related to God's presence, favor, power, or pleasure is already something we can enjoy for they come to us today by the Spirit of Christ. All other promises addressing more physical, material provision, protection, <clears throat> or something that will indeed be realized, but such, such blessings are only certain at the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth, when we will receive our resurrection bodies and when there will be no more tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain. See, the New Testament writers are talking and often emphasizing that what we have right now, and we have to make sure we don't have an over-realized eschatology, that those blessings of God's presence, where he talks about the new covenant in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that those blessings are already ours right now because the Spirit has come into our lives. But those other blessings about us inheriting the earth, the, 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 the Abrahamic promise being expanded for the people of God, those things are future and will happen when Christ comes. So it is about what we have with God now, access to his presence, help in the time of need in our 
current life. That brings us to Tuesday's thought. The key word for Tuesday is obedience. Obedience. The key thought is that faith in Jesus or faith in God is seen in our obedience. It's seen in our obedience. Key verse here is Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. Notice what the text says. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. That's where we get one of his ages from. It's right there. Uh, we don't know what age he was when he left uh, Ur, but we do know uh, he's 75 when he departs from Haran. Now, as I reread through the life of Abraham, I noticed in the text that there was something missing about Abraham's life. Uh, maybe you'll read the text and you'll find it. Maybe I just overlooked it. But what I noticed in the text was that the language of faith, belief, trust, is missing from the life of Abraham. There's only one instance where that type of language is used of Abraham. Uh, it was in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which I just read at your hearing, specifically about him trusting that God would do what he said, that is, give him a male heir to uh, inherit all that he had. Uh, and so God, Abraham believed that, and God counted as righteousness. But if you look at another place in, in Abraham's life, you don't find that language used of Abraham. Instead, what you find in Abraham's life is that his faith is not talked about in that way. It's seen through the way he lives his life. It's how he responds to what God says that shows his faith in God. Let me give you a few examples from Abraham's life. Right here in this text, God commands Genesis chapter 12 for Abraham to get up in an ancient world Leave a secure society that you're in and move into a land that might be hostile and dangerous for you that you've never lived in before. This is not a simple relocation from Detroit to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We're talking about moving out of no man's land where people you don't know, that languages you may not speak may be hostile to you. And God is saying, trust me and go out in faith. And so this is the situation that God does. And the text says that Abraham did exactly what the Lord said uh, told him to do. God commands uh, Abraham with like not one of my favorite commands in Scripture, but He says in giving and forming the covenant later in the life of Abraham, He says, "I'm going to give you a sign of the covenant that I formed with you, and what I want you to do is circumcise all the males in your house." That is not an easy command. It's not a painless command. It's one of those commands I might have to reflect on for a day or two, meditate on, and think about. I don't know if they had anesthesia in those days. But, but, but this is a command that God gives to Abraham. Notice what the text says, Genesis chapter 17. When he, that being God, had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said. Now, Ishmael's about 13 years old, I think, at this point in time. And Abraham's 99. Must have not been too much fun. Later in the text, God commands Abraham to set Hagar free and to set Ishmael free. So after Isaac is born, there's this unique situation that's happening. Uh, when uh, Isaac was weaned, uh, perhaps in the, that was just the culture of the day, Abraham threw a party. And he's got lots of people around. They're having a big party. They're going on because Isaac's probably two or three years old. Ishmael at this point is, 
is because he's about 14 years older, you know, so he's probably somewhere between 16 and 17 years old. And, uh, and Sarah's at the party, and Hagar's there, and Ishmael's there, and Abraham loves Ishmael. This is his son. They've been together. They've done stuff together. He didn't taught this boy stuff. He loves this boy. He may look just like his dad. They're there at the party, and Sarah, the wife, is holding her little baby son, Isaac, and I don't know what was going on in the party, but she looked over, and she noticed that uh, uh, little Ishmael was laughing. Doesn't say what he was laughing at. He just may have been having a good time. It was a party. It's festive. She sees him laughing, and she said, mm-mm, uh, we're not going to have that. Not up in this house, we're not. And so she tells Abraham, I want him out the house. I want him and his mother gone. Put them out. I don't want them. I don't even want him in, in the sight of my son. You need to put them out of the family. The text tells us that Abraham is extremely displeased with this idea. You know, Abraham is about to put his wife in check. Like, you know what? This is my son. He, you know, this is my heir. He's going to stay up in this house, right? And right in the midst of that situation, God shows up. And God says to Abraham, you better listen to your wife. Help them move on out the house. They need to leave. And, uh, and it's because of that that we find and notice, even though Abraham is displeased with this idea, even though he doesn't like this idea, this is his son that he loves. Ishmael is his boy. Notice what the text says, Genesis 21, 14. So Abraham arose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. He doesn't hesitate. Once God speaks, he moves on. it. Then another command happens. You think, well, okay, well, that was a hard one for Abraham to deal with, putting your own son at the house that you love because of your wife. You know, she a little frustrated. You start thinking back to other stuff like this was your idea in the first place, you know. Like, he's here because of you, but, you know, you didn't want to blame him. And so God has intervened, and now you got that, and you didn't live some years with Isaac, and now you, your heart is missing your other son, and, you know, Isaac has kind of filled up that void for you in your heart. And then there comes a point when God shows up and says, you know that boy you love so much? I want you to take him and sacrifice him. How do you think Abraham felt in that moment? He had already had to lose one son. Now, here God is telling him he's going to have to lose another son. But notice what the text says about Abraham. Chapter 22, verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Notice it. Early in the morning. Saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. There was a repeated pattern in the text that I was trying to draw out to you. I don't know if you saw it in the text. But notice something about Abraham's behavior in response to the commands of God. Once God speaks, there's no hesitancy, no matter how difficult it is, for Abraham to respond in obedience to God. He does exactly what God says with haste. And the, the Bible calls us to respond in that same way to God's commands. 
that there ought to not be hesitancy, that once you know that God has spoken on a matter, we ought to move in obedience. And by that, we show that we really do trust what God has said. The writer of the New Testament picks up this theme when he talks about it. The half-brother of Jesus, his name is James. He talks about this whole concept in chapter 2, and he talks about faith and works. And he talks to believers, and he's saying, you know, there's maybe this believer who's saying, well, you know what, I have faith. I don't necessarily need to show my faith by my actions. And James starts to deal with it. He goes back to Abraham and this whole incident. And what he ends up saying is this. He says, listen, but some of you will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, what he goes on to say right after that, that I didn't include in this, is he goes on to say the demons have faith. Their theology is right. They believe that there's one God, and they're right. But what is going on? The demons don't live in obedience to God. So if you are talking about the kind of faith that saves you, it's got to be better than what demons have. That's what he's talking about his test. That true saving faith that will bring you, that brings you into a relationship with Christ, that's working in you, won't stay in you. It will work its way out in the way that you live your life. And that's what we see in Abraham's life. And the question that, that was burdened on my heart, and maybe I should ask it to you, is this. How quickly do you respond to God's commands when you know what God has said about a situation in your life? Are you hesitant to respond, or are you quick to try to do what God has told you to do? That brings us to Wednesday's thought. The key word is allegiance. Key thought is that faith in God or Jesus produces allegiance to God and Jesus. Faith in God or Jesus produces allegiance to God, God or Jesus. The key scripture here is Genesis 12, 7. Notice what the text says. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to, said, to your offspring I will give this land. It's the last part that I want to bring out. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Throughout the life of Abraham, you're going to see this repeated pattern if you start reading through his life, that once he had turned from worshiping those idols, Nana and whatever other gods were going on in the Sumerian area of Ur and all of that land and all that, once he turned from worshiping idols, he never turned back and he never compromised. What we see in Abraham's life is that every time he comes to a place or God moves him to a place or he moves to another place, one of the things that's a repeated pattern in his life is that he builds altars and worships only the God of heaven and no other God and prays only to the God of heaven. A few places you would see that is Genesis 12, 8, uh, 13, 4, 13, 18, 20, 17, and chapter 22, verse 9. Now, you may have heard the phrase before used, I am a one-woman man. That is, I'm solely devoted to one woman. See, the same thing ought to be said about us as followers of God. We ought to be able to say, I am a one God follower. I don't live with divided loyalties. My loyalties are solely for God. It's this idea that Jesus gets at this concept when he writes and speaks in his own culture when he said this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, 
he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus getting at? Is he telling us to hate our father and mothers? No. But he's saying our allegiances cannot be divided. That there must be loyalty to one above all. And that is to Jesus himself. Give me a, a way in my own life that this played out where I got a chance to see divided loyalty. So when I, when I first went to college, because I had grown up in a Christian home and my dad was a preacher, uh, he, had strict, he had restrictions on us. He put the lockdown on us because he was very concerned about the lives that we were living, and he didn't want us to fall prey to the culture of our community and those in our school and surrounding area. And so when I got to college, because I lived about eight to ten hours away from my dad in Oklahoma, I had a lot of freedom. And I found out that, like other people, I was a sinner. And I had sinful desires. So one of the things I got a chance to experience when I first went to college is I found out about this whole concept of parties. I had never been to a party before. I didn't even know what it was about. But there were friends at college who introduced me to the partying concept. And I remember on this one particular occasion during my first year, uh, we went to a party. It was on a Saturday night. And it went into the late hours or early hours, rather, of a Sunday morning. And we went home and went to sleep. Now, most of us who were in that group that night that had gone together to the party, we had a background of going to church. And so there was this feeling of obligation, like, you know, it's Sunday. You should go to church. So here we are getting up in the service we could get to that, that the university provided a bus to was an early morning service, like 8 a.m. in the morning. So we all made it onto the bus half asleep. We get into the church service, and this is what's going on. We were praying. <laughs> the whole church service. <laughs> and you know what? I couldn't wait for the church service to be over, because you know what I was thinking? I just want to go home and go to sleep. I just want to go home and go to sleep. Because you know what was going on in my life? I wanted to have a foot in the world and a foot in the church. I wanted to follow what the world was doing and be a part of that, and I still wanted to hold on to Jesus. But what the text tells us is that God will not have any of it. You can't have Jesus and the world. It's either Jesus or the world, but it's not both at the same time. You cannot have divided loyalties when it comes to Christ. It has to be one or the other. And that's why it is so hard for a person who's trying to move towards Jesus to continue to live a double life. At some point, you got to make a decision on which road you're going to go down. Either you're going to keep going the way the world is going and your flesh is leading you, or you're going to deny that and you're going to actually have to make a decision to move towards Christ in the way, the direction that he's calling you. But you can't live in both directions at the same time. Time. You must have allegiance to Jesus. But what the text seems to point out, and that as we see in New Testament writers, that if genuine faith is in you, that saving faith where the Spirit is present in you, He won't let you stay in that state. He will move you towards having an allegiance solely to Jesus Christ. That brings me to Thursday. Thursday. Thursday, the word for Thursday is not a fun word, but it's a word that's necessary, trials. The key thought here is that faith in God 
or faith in Jesus does not exempt us from the trials of life. Key scripture here, Genesis chapter 13, verses 5 through 7. And Lot, who went uh, with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between them, the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanite and Pezzarites were dwelling in the land. Uh, so because they have so much stuff, and they got so many people working for them, but they got two different families trying to work it out, they're arguing most likely over grazing rights. And so there's conflict between them, and so they have to break that up. Later we see in uh, Genesis chapter 21 where Abraham has dug a well, and then, then he's living in a certain land, and some of the servants of the king who live in that land come and seize the well, eminent domain. They come and just take it over. That's theirs, right? And so he ends up having to talk to them. And what's interesting in this text is God doesn't show up to resolve the problem, doesn't do anything, doesn't move to, to address the issue, right? Because faith in God does not mean that we will have a pass on the problems of life. If you thought that believing in Jesus would mean you got a card to get out of troubles, let me take that card back from you. It's not the reality of living in faith. You and I are going to have the same problems that unbelievers have in this life. That's just what it means to live on this side of the consummation of all things. And you know what that means? If you look at the text, Abraham wasn't in the wrong relationship with God. He hadn't sinned, and he hadn't done anything wrong. It didn't mean that God didn't love him. It didn't mean that God didn't know what was going on. It didn't mean that God didn't care about him. It just meant this is life, and that's part of life. And that's just the reality of living on earth. And the same is true for our lives as Christians as well. Our faith in Jesus does not exempt us from the normal trials in life. We look at that and see that in the New Testament. Examples of sickness, Timothy, Epaphroditus, Trophimus, all of those devoted Christians, serious about God, living for the gospel, pursuing the mission of Christ, doing and putting themselves in danger. We find them sick at different points. And although Paul had had the power to heal and to get done miracles, in all three of those cases, there's nothing that he does to heal them. Epaphroditus actually almost dies. It's just part of living in this world. That's just the reality of it. We find that sometimes conflicts even arise. Paul and Barnabas, Yodia uh, uh, and Syntyche and Philippians doing work and ministry together. They don't see eye to eye. There's conflict. That's just the reality of life. See, being and having faith in Jesus does not exempt us from the normal trials of this life. That brings us to Friday. Trials lead to the word test. Key thought here is that faith in Jesus will be tested. Key scriptures, Genesis 22, 1 through 2. After these things, the God, God tested Abraham. Only time in his life that these words are used of him. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only, or rather here, your unique son, knowing that he's not his only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now think back about the text and how the text is playing out because this is the climax of Abraham's story, the sacrifice of Isaac. The story has been building up this whole point to this specific moment in Abraham's life. 
Once it's resolved, the story is going to move downward quickly. But this is the point of tension. Now, we got to think back to what has already happened in Abraham's life. God had promised him that he was going to have an heir. God promised he was going to have an heir by his wife, and, his, and God gave him the name. He was to name him Isaac. God promised him that Isaac would have children, and from those children would come a great nation, and that they were going to inherit the land and all these promises. God had already promised that at this point in Isaac's life, Isaac is neither married nor does he have children. Abraham has the word of God and now a command from God that seemed to be contradictory. What will Abraham do? He trusts the promises of God and he moves forward to obey what God has said. Because what's not told to us in this text is that Abraham believes something that he has already experienced. Abraham's body and Sarah's body were dead. They couldn't have children. And a God who showed up and made a promise some kind of way turned back the hand of time and made what was unavailable available. And now they were able to have children. He resurrected something that they could not do. The writer of Hebrews reflects on this, and this is what he says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive back from the dead. See, Abraham had to believe the same thing that God asked of us to believe. You know what that is? That God can raise the dead. That's what the whole story of Jesus is about. Do you believe that God can actually raise the dead? And with these things in mind, then the apostles wrote to us. James said this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. As Peter put it this way, in this you rejoice. Joyce, now uh, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the trials of life show up, you must remember, I must remember that it's just a test of faith. It's a test of faith. That brings me to my final day, Saturday. The word here is finish. Finish. That may be a cue for me too. Uh, finish. <laughs> faith in God should continue all the way through life. Scripture here is to Genesis 25, verse 7 and 8. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age and an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. And when you read the entire life of Abraham and you think about his life in light of later scripture, when you read 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles and those types of books and you look at what happens in other people's lives, you will notice that there is something missing from Abraham's life. You don't read in the text as it shuts down his life that Abraham in the latter part of his life turned away from God and started doing evil. You don't read how Abraham strayed from God or started worshiping idols again. You don't see any of that. It just closes out his life, which implies that Abraham lived faithful to God 
unto death. And the scripture calls us to do the same. There are many scriptures in the New Testament that talks about us persevering in the faith. We're not to be like those in the old days who, when in the latter part of their life, when they enjoyed blessing from God, they turned from God. That's the sad thing about Solomon's life. He started off so good, but you know who he ended up looking like at the end of his life? Like Pharaoh when he got to the end of his life. That's who he more resembled. We're not to be that way. We're to seek to be obedient and faithful to Jesus all the way to the end so that we can say like Paul, as he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, that's the call for us is to live a life faithful to Jesus all the days of our lives. On Thursday night, I was headed home after small group, and we got home after small group, and my daughter got home, and the blinds were still open, and my daughter walked over to the blinds, and she started closing all the blinds. And I looked at my daughter, and I just said to her, I said, sweetheart, out of surprise, thank you. Thank you for closing the blinds. My daughter said something insightful to me, which I think is relevant for what we're talking about. She said, Daddy, I closed the blinds because I knew that that's what you would have wanted. Brothers and sisters, as we live a life of faith and we keep walking with God, that's ultimately what happens in our lives. We come to truly know who God is so that as we live life and encounter new decisions, we can do exactly what God wants us to do. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, that uh, whatever it is, those acts of closing the blinds, that, Lord, we would be able to say to you, Lord, we're moving, led by your spirit to do exactly what you wanted because we know you and we know what you desire. Ultimately, that is to produce the life of Christ in us. That's what you're after. Help us to live in that way. We thank you for Abraham's life and what you did in his life. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to learn about you through him, a case study. But Lord, what we mostly desire is to be in relationship with Jesus. We desire him above all else. We desire to know you, to be in fellowship with you, to please you in all that we do. And to fulfill what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says. By faith that we live a life pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.